John Dryden and the Earl of Rochester were two men with a great deal in common. Both were poets and playwrights who ran in the same social circles in London during the 1670s. Politically, their views definitely intersected, and together they are probably the major authors of the Restoration period who have had the most longevity, after Afroben, of course. Rochester certainly is still regarded as one of the great 17th century poets, the author of sexual verses that are less erotic than erratic. As men, however, Dryden and Rochester were very different. They were two difficult men, caught up in a difficult friendship that eventually turned sour. And neither man came off better. Hi, I'm Mari McNeil, and this is Gin and Gossip, Theatre History Between the Acts. Dryden was born in 1631 to a genteel family, but not an aristocratic one. For all of that, however, he nevertheless received an excellent education. He spent his very early years in Northamptonshire before being sent to Westminster School in London, the top private school of the 17th century. He was there on a scholarship, and his time there likely intersected with that of the philosopher John Locke, the architect Christopher Wren, and the scientist Robert Hooke three men who would be instrumental in shaping the 17th century world. Later on, Dryden went on to Trinity College, Cambridge. While there, he may have crossed paths with the diarist, Samuel Pepys, who attended Magdalen College two years later. Aside from having had the good fortune to run with some of the brightest minds of the later Restoration period, Dryden's boyhood and youth passed without much to distinguish it from that of other boys of his age and background. But somewhere along the line, he began to compose poetry. In the mid-1650s, Dryden moved to London for work. Formerly, he was a clerk, but over the following years, his writing began to draw the attention of those around him, and he was soon able to make a living off his pen. He married at about this time to Lady Elizabeth Howard, and over the following decade, the couple had three sons. Elizabeth was part of a large royalist family, and many of her brothers were good friends with Charles II, having fought with him against bad old Cromwell. Her brothers wrote plays that celebrated Charles's reign, and sometimes they even shared mistresses with the king. They have all been largely forgotten in the popular imagination, but for a time in English history, they were an interesting family to know. After Charles was restored to the throne in 1660 and permitted plays to be acted in public once again, it didn't take too long for Dryden to take his talent for writing poetry to the stage. He worked hard for the next decade, and by the end of the 1660s, he was easily recognised as one of the most important poets and playwrights in the country. He had even been named Poet Laureate, as well as Historiographer Royal. We can also thank Dryden for the bombastic heroic dramas we talked about in our episode on Nathaniel Lee. Although the genre had been developed in the works of other mid-century playwrights such as William Davenant and Roger Boyle, the heroic turned out to be a form that Dryden excelled in. Although he wrote a good mixture of comedies and tragedies, it was his talent for the heroic that really made his name in 1660s London. For a long time, when people in the 17th and 18th centuries thought about heroic drama, the characters who were involved in it and the sort of plots that were used, a lot of them probably immediately thought of Dryden's The Conquest of Granada. 
This was a heroic that was written in 1670, but set in the late 15th century. The backdrop is the historic battle for Granada between the Moors and the Spaniards, but even Dryden's original audiences didn't need to know that much about it, because it's really an excuse for a classic love triangle. At the beginning of the play, King Boabdelin is trying to defend his land in Granada from the Spaniards. In stomps Almanzor, the great warrior. Almanzor swears to fight in Boabdelin's army until he falls in love with Boabdelin's fiancé, Almahid. And so begins many scenes of Almanzor and Almahid struggling with their desire for one another and their ambition to do their duty. Boabdelin, for his part, is well aware of the feelings his fiancé and his general have for one another, but Almanzor is such a good soldier that he doesn't want to send him away, so he doesn't know what to do either. This state of affairs carries on for two plays, there was a part one and a part two, both very successful. By the end, Boabdelin is dead, and Granada has fallen to the Spanish. And things work out for Almanzor and Almahid, more or less. They can now marry, and as a bonus, Almanzor has discovered that he is secretly the son of a Spanish nobleman. Although the plot of The Conquest of Granada might seem overblown and ridiculous to us today, really, it's not too different to the basic premise of a lot of Hollywood films. And, as we saw when we talked about heroic drama before, the genre wasn't really about being realistic. It was more interested in showcasing high emotions that would move audiences, It was about propping up the beliefs that the ruling class and the ruling class's supporters had about themselves. The conquest of Granada was very important in the history of this sort of play, and really it's hard to overstate the importance of Almanzor during the 17th and 18th centuries. You see references to him everywhere in literary criticism, in conduct writing, in battle regulations for a really long time, much in the same way we always see references to Superman these days. The conquest of Granada was met with immediate success, and ridicule. Soon after it premiered, another play was also produced, called The Rehearsal. The Rehearsal mercilessly satirised Dryden and his plays. The main character is a pompous buffoon of a playwright who composes unrealistic characters and puts them in over-the-top situations. In many scenes, there is a line-by-line parody of Dryden's own work. Perhaps the heroic wasn't such a foolproof genre after all. The author of the rehearsal was the Duke of Buckingham, one of the richest and most influential men in London, just the sort of man whom Dryden had spent the past decade trying to impress. The rehearsal was a great success and was performed for decades, long after it occurred to anyone to stage any of Dryden's heroic dramas. Poor Dryden. Nevertheless, Dryden rallied. During the 1670s, he lent his support to up-and-coming young authors, such as Nathaniel Lee, as we have already seen. He composed a great number of new plays and poetry, and some prose essays. A lot of it was a variation on the same old stuff he had produced throughout the 1660s, Tory pieces that recited the things that Charles II wanted to hear, but he also experimented with new types of writing. He wrote a lot of poetry about other poets, much of it not very kind. Perhaps he felt that all bets were off after the rehearsal. If his pride had been bruised by the satire aimed at him, he could at least comfort himself that he was at the heart of London's literary culture. This was where Dryden was, professionally speaking, towards the end of the 1670s. But before we move on to have a look at what happened to him after that, let's roll back the clock a few decades so that we can have a look at the life of the second subject of today's episode. John Wilmot, Earl of Rochester, was a spiteful sort of person. Very brilliant, but he was always snipping at people and having little disagreements with his friends. 
there are a lot of anecdotes left over from the 17th century in which Rochester says something nasty or does something violent, apparently on impulse. Dryden spent a lot of his time finessing his image and making friends with the right sort of circle. Rochester, on the other hand, had a real talent for getting under people's skin. Rochester was about 15 years younger than Dryden, and his upbringing was rather different. His father had fought on the side of the Royalists during the Civil War and had been given an earldom for his troubles. He died young, and young John became the new Earl himself in 1658 at the age of 11. At 13, he went to Oxford, where he grew debauched, and at 14, he received an honorary MA, before taking a three-year tour of Europe, as many well-bred young men did at this time. He was, you will notice, quite young for attending university and travelling the continent, but not unusually young for the 17th century. Time passed. In his late teens, Rochester came to London and was presented at Charles II's court. Although an earl, he was not very rich, and the fast living of the court sets could be very expensive. Rochester needed a way to get his hands on some ready cash, and he set about this in a highly ungallant way by attempting to abduct a wealthy young heiress, Elizabeth Mallet. The plot was poorly thought through, and Rochester was quickly arrested and sent to the Tower of London for three weeks. Charles II, for his sins, could be a shrewd judge of character and was quick to realise that Rochester could cause trouble for him. His solution was to send him off to fight the Dutch, England's great enemy, and by all accounts Rochester fought admirably. He returned to England in 1666 and eloped with Elizabeth Mallet, who, amazingly, had waited for him. Rochester was still not rich, but he was making a reputation for himself. He made friends and enemies at court, and in 1669 attempted to fight a duel. During this time, the late 1660s, he made a foray into writing poetry, which he kept up for the rest of his life. Much of what he wrote was obscene, with titles like Signor Dildo, you can only imagine the content. He also had his hands in a few plays, often darkly sexual in subject matter. The play he is best known for, Sodom, or The Quintessence of Debauchery, is probably by him, although we can't be sure. The play depicts a 17th century court descending into erotic mania, and ruled over by King Boloxinian and Queen Cuntigratia. If Charles II, one of our more openly promiscuous monarchs, ever saw the play, he was likely unamused. It was clear that the man he had long suspected was going to cause problems for him was causing some significant problems. Rochester's life was as colourful as that of any of the libertines who appeared on the stage. He was part of a circle of vibrant young men who were known as the Merry Gang, aristocratic types who drank their days away and spent their nights cosied up in brothels. Throughout the 1670s, he was challenged to more duels, had many affairs, and was sent away from court several times. Rumour had it that at one point he impersonated a medical man, calling himself Dr. Bendo, and claimed to help women who had difficulties conceiving with their husbands by impregnating them himself. His affair with the famous actress Elizabeth Barry was notorious. It was said that it was he who taught her how to act. The pathways of Dryden and Rochester crossed throughout the 1670s. As was often the case with Rochester and his acquaintances, the two men had a hot and cold relationship. Rochester sometimes acted as Dryden's patron. This was an important relationship for 17th century authors to cultivate because it meant money, and they often bent over backwards to flatter their patrons. We have already seen Nathaniel Lee's ecstatic exclamations over his female patron's beauty in order to butter them up. 
Anyway, Dryden wrote a long dedication to Rochester at the beginning of his 1673 comedy Marriage a la Mode, in which he praises Rochester's excellent courtly manners, his gallantry, and of course his generosity. Not only this, but Dryden notes his gratitude for the play's production. Rochester apparently had made some changes to the play himself, as well as recommending it to Charles II as a good yarn before its first performance. But then, it's hard to know how much of this was just hot air. After all, Rochester was rumoured to have had a hand in writing the rehearsal, the play that made such a mockery of Dryden's own work. Likewise, Dryden didn't make himself popular with Rochester when he courted the patronage of the Earl of Mulgrave. Mulgrave was Rochester's great rival. The two men had quarrelled for years, and Mulgrave had in fact been the other combatant in the duel that Rochester attempted to fight in 1669. Rubbing shoulders with Margrave was not a wonderful idea for someone who wanted to remain on good terms with Rochester. Ultimately, although they ran in similar circles, held similar political positions, and both produced poetry and drama at the same time, they were from two different worlds. The fact that Rochester was an aristocrat, and Dryden was a gentleman, distanced them in innumerable tiny but vastly important ways, and this meant everything. I tell you all of this, to give a picture of these two men in 1679. There are a lot of days that Dryden could probably have described as his worst. There was the premiere of the rehearsal, there was the decline and death of his friend Nathaniel Lee, with whom he had worked on many of his best plays in the late 1670s. There was that horrible moment towards the end of his career, when political factions turned and the title of Poet Laureate was stripped from him. And there were the deaths and disappearances common to the 17th century way of living. All of these things make for an unhappy life, although Dryden seems to have rallied from them all with admirable spirit. Perhaps he took a pragmatic view of the world. But if we were to pick just one day for Dryden's worst day ever, my vote would go to the 18th of December, 1679. Dryden had spent the evening in one of London's coffee houses, a trendy new sort of establishment which had popped up in recent decades where men gathered to gossip, read newspapers, and observe the latest fashion trends. They were often associated with political sedition, and four years earlier, in 1675, Charles II had attempted to outlaw them. This decree had failed, and coffee houses remained a good place to soak up some culture. At the end of an evening of coffee and chatter, Dryden left to make his way home. His journey back was not a long one, and as he passed through the streets, he likely smelled the aromas of a 17th century winter. Nutmeg. Oranges. Firewood. If you have been to London in December, you know that the nights can be very cold and very dark. To return home, Dryden had to pass down Rose Street in Covent Garden, which is really more of an alleyway. On his way, he was set upon by three men who had been lying in wait for him. Calling him a rogue and a son of a whore, they knocked him down and cudgelled him. It was only when Dryden cried out murder that the men ran off. Dryden was left badly injured, but alive. In the days following the attack, Dryden advertised in the newspaper Domestic Intelligence for witnesses, promising anyone who came forward to name his assailants the handsome sum of £50. At a time when some domestic servants were earning as little as a pound or two a year, this was a substantial amount, but no one came forward. The advertisement was reprinted several times, but to no avail. No one knew anything, and anyone who did know had good reasons for keeping quiet. In the years afterwards, the blame for the attack has been laid at Rochester's feet. 
Not that Rochester was one of the men who had beaten Dryden and left him for dead, certainly not, but it was suggested very soon after the incident that Dryden's attackers had been hired goons who were carrying out Rochester's bidding. Rochester even wrote a poem called Coxcombs in Place in which he made fun of Dryden's cudgelled skin. As I said, Rochester was a spiteful sort. I think what really hurts about this attack is the manner in which it took place. Dryden had all his life not quite fit into the society he courted, for all that he was a successful playwright. He was embedded in an establishment culture, but he hadn't quite been born into it. Remember, he had gone to school as a scholarship boy before going off to work as a clerk. Moreover, he had married into an aristocratic family who had perpetually reminded him of his lower class status. This was all bad enough, but on top of that, we have to remember what violence actually meant in the 17th century. The aristocratic code of honour was an odd thing during this period. If another man offended you in some way, if they insulted you or your family, or they seduced your wife or sister, or if you had a political disagreement, or if they accused you of lying, then you would call this man out. This meant a duel. You would send him a challenge, which he would hopefully accept, and the two of you would meet early one morning in a desolate park. At your side would be two or more men. These were your seconds. You would draw your swords and begin to fight, perhaps to the death, but if you were lucky, perhaps just to first blood, which meant that you'd be satisfied if your opponent just bled a little without dying. Your seconds might fight as well. The knowledge that you are committing a violent act in the name of honour can be an opiate. Many men died this way during the 17th and 18th centuries. Lord Bruce of Kinloss, the Earl of Shrewsbury, the Duke of Buckingham, as well as countless others whose names have not been recorded. It was not legal, but it was tolerated. If you were unfortunate enough to kill your opponent, you could flee to France until it all blew over, or you could hope that the king would be lenient and give you a pardon. It did happen. If you were taken to court, a manslaughter ruling was likely. After all, you'd been provoked into sending the challenge in the first place. Dueling was a headache for 17th and 18th century lawmakers, but nobody wanted to put any stricter rules in place against it. For many men, including the ones who made the laws, dueling was a sort of badge of status. It might be some small comfort, but if a man challenged you to a duel, it meant that he was acknowledging you as his social equal, someone who was a worthy opponent, who needed dealing with personally. Remember this as you're bleeding to death. This was the formal honour duel. It was not, of course, what happened to Dryden, who was surprised, beaten with sticks, and left for dead in a dark alleyway. There is no honour to be found in that. And this is the moral. To be attacked in this manner wasn't just a physical punishment for making blunt remarks. It was a pointed reminder of Dryden's social status. Dryden might fraternise with noblemen, write great plays that lionised them and receive their patronage, and he could even marry their sisters. But he was, at the end of it all, only a gentleman, and he would never be any more than a hanger-on in the society he yearned to be a part of. It meant, frankly, that Rochester thought that fighting a duel with Dryden wasn't worth his time. What a horrific snub. But before we snatch up our pitchforks and storm the gates of Rochester's elegant country house, we have to ask, was he really responsible for the assault? Well, there have been some questions about that over the years. The first is the issue of motive. 
Although Rochester didn't find anything wrong with making fun of Dryden's misfortune, that doesn't mean that he was actually responsible for plotting an attack on him. The critic John Harold Wilson argues that Dryden and Rochester had had little to do with one another for a while by the end of 1679. Their last literary squabble had occurred at the beginning of 1678, when Dryden had written some scathing words in his preface to his play All for Love. Would Rochester really wait the better part of two years to take his revenge? Wilson also points out that there is little evidence that Rochester was blamed for the attack by his contemporaries. The idea that he was guilty is perhaps more of literary tradition than literary fact. Who else could have been responsible then? A major alternative candidate is Louise de Carroil, Duchess of Portsmouth, and the King's mistress. These two facts were not unconnected. She had held sway over Charles II for ten years and was wildly unpopular, being both Catholic and French, personal attributes that the 17th century public found wholly disgusting. Dryden, never reluctant to jump onto a popular bandwagon, had recently written some verses satirising her. If she was enacting her revenge on the poet, she had certainly found a most belittling way to do so. So who was really responsible for what happened to Dryden on the night of the 18th of December, 1679? After all this time, it's difficult to say. The idea that Rochester had a hand in the affair remains appealing, although I must admit my bias towards a good story. But in the end, does it really matter? The outcome is the same. Dryden's enemy, whoever he or she was, disliked him enough to make it clear that he wasn't worth a formal duel that for all of his efforts, he would never reach the pinnacles of society. Rose Street, the site of the attack, is still there. I visited it recently. It's a fairly unimpressive street near Covent Garden Market, running between a travel bookshop and a novelty stationer's. If you go there now, you can follow the street along to reach the Lamb and Flag pub, which has been there since the 18th century, when it was known as the Bucket of Blood because of the bare-knuckle boxing matches that took place there violence seems to weigh the area down. We can be thankful at least that Dryden was not permanently injured from the attack. In the years that followed, he wrote many plays and other works of literature. What can we say for the rest of their lives? Rochester did not live for much longer. He died in 1680, aged just 32, riddled with syphilis. The Archbishop Burnet, who attended his bedside, swore that Rochester died like a saint, repenting for all of his sins. And perhaps he did. His title died with him, having fathered no legitimate sons. His memory lives on today as one of the greatest libertines and greatest poets of the Restoration, which is probably a fair critique. Dryden was luckier health-wise, but that is about as much as can be said for him. In 1685, Charles II died without a legitimate child, and his brother James took the throne. James was a Catholic, and it was widely believed that he was plotting to make England Catholic once again. This was more than the public could stand. After three years of James's rule, James's Protestant son-in-law, William of Orange, was invited to invade the country, and William and his wife Mary, James's daughter, were jointly crowned king and queen. Throughout all of this, Dryden stayed loyal to James. He and Charles II had been good to him. Dryden refused to swear allegiance to the new monarchs, and for this he was punished. His political leanings were not what the new William III wanted in a poet laureate, and so in 1689 he was stripped of the title. He was replaced by Thomas Shadwell, a poor poet and dramatist, who Dryden had made fun of in verse ten years earlier. That must have stung. 
Dryden spent the rest of his life as a translator, turning works by Homer, Ovid, Boccaccio, and even Chaucer into modern English. He also published thoughtful essays on literature, earning himself the title of father of English criticism among later generations. He did not leave the stage entirely, and he made several collaborations during the 1690s. He even lived to see a play written by his son performed on the London stage, although he probably didn't enjoy its negative reviews. He died in 1700. Although Dryden and Rochester had a relationship that can be described as rocky at best, there is something in them that they had in common. Both men wrote striking, innovative works. They appreciated earthy, homegrown poetry, but they took it seriously and used it to shape the age. Even their disagreements and misfortunes are a fascinating taste of the time. After all, who doesn't love a bit of drama? Gin and Gossip was written and produced by me, Mari McNeil. Show notes can be found on ginandgossip.wordpress.com. If you enjoyed this episode, please follow us on Twitter at ginandgossippod. 